we had a ground speed of 353 knots. And, and yet, when we, when we got to Orlando, we landed in the parking lot at the convention center. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 72, and we'll begin to find out about the AW609 tilt rotor design being developed by Leonardo, and that he's aiming for an FAA certification in late 2019. With the 609 comes the promise of having a platform that can operate from a helipad or field site, but then have a flight envelope in aeroplane mode up to 275 knots and 25,000 feet, and possibly higher in the near future. That dual capability then opens up some really interesting use cases, and especially so for Australian listeners in our local context for the aeromedical segment of the industry. I'd say the probably the most well-known tilt rotor at the moment for listeners would be the Bell Boeing V-22 Osprey, which we covered back in episode 21. The 609, though, is it's a fair bit smaller, and unlike the V-22 and some of the other tilt rotor designs under development for the US military, the 609 has a pressurized cabin. The V-22 tops out at about 14,000 feet uh, ceiling, which is well below what the 609 can operate up to. To give us the, the rundown today, we get to enlist the help of Dan Wells, who has been a test pilot on the 609 since 2011. Just last month, Dan was inducted, along with another nine pilots, as a fellow of the Society of Experimental Test Pilots, recognising his more than three decades of piloting and 7,200 flight hours, including his work on the 609 program. Dan also was recognised back in 2014 for another flight test award, which he shares with Mercury and Apollo astronauts and Concorde and B-1 bomber and McDonnell Douglas NOTAR test pilots. And I'll tell you more about that at the end of the interview. Dan Wells, thank you so much for having the time to, to chat to us on the Rotary Wing show today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. I don't know if you had this sort of thing happen when you get introduced as a, as a test pilot or when I have a mental model of a test pilot. My, I guess my imagery goes straight to like the, the years of Chuck Yeager breaking the sound barrier and, and things like that. But I'm imagining the, the day-to-day reality is a little bit less glamorous and there's a, a lot more paperwork. So do you want to dispel that kind of uh, image that people have of going out there every day and, and uh, breaking sound barriers? Well, I, I do wish it was that way, and, and in a way, it, it was the book, The Right Stuff, that uh, actually inspired me to become a test pilot, but uh, yeah, it's, it is a lot more mundane than that, and a lot of, a lot of po- programs that you work are uh, programs that are improvements to existing aircraft, so you know, there's programs where you put in a new avionics system or you, you convert to a glass cockpit, uh, things like that, and, and so um, a lot of it is less glamorous than breaking the sound barrier right but on the 609 i'm very fortunate because the 609 is a prototype aircraft and uh we do get to go out and do things that haven't been done before and for that i'm uh, very very grateful and very very lucky yeah especially in the early days and i guess we'll get to that because it's not something that you would go straight into you've got quite a a very career to, to get there but uh, quite tongue-in-cheek, though, I was going to ask, when do they give you the orange flight suit and the, and the white helmet? Because it just seems to be recently all those videos, not you know, just not your program, but, but all the test pilot programs, everyone's wearing the orange flight suit and the, uh, the white helmet. So is that a, a uniform you get when you graduate from test pilot school? <laughs> no, actually the company buys it for you. <laughs> it's kind of funny because... Um, because every company has a different color, it seems. And so when I was, uh, I was at Boeing for about three years at Boeing Defense, and I flew on a, a, a C-130 avionics modernization program, we had tan flight suits out in the desert. We flew out of Edwards Air Force Base, and, and there we were in the desert with a tan flight suit. And I always thought, 
you know, if if I had to bail out and they had to look for me, it's going to be kind of hard to find a, a tan flight suit against a desert background. But so I think the orange flight suit is really there so they can find you easier and pick you up if need be. But uh, hopefully that'll never happen. Well, that's what so, I thought. It kind of talks to the uh, the slightly elevated risk of, of some of the flying you do. You know, the fact that hopefully exactly at the high visibility that they're going to find you in whatever state you are. Yeah, that's that's, that's the point. <laughs> All right, I got that little brief here that you started on on Cobras. Did you, you know, what was the initial training? Did you go through something before you obviously landed in Cobras? No, actually, I um, I I joined the army uh, to become a helicopter pilot. So I, uh, when I was a college student, I really and truly did not know what I wanted to do, and uh, I was majored in mathematics, and I I had friends that graduated and the. The kind of jobs they got where they sat at a desk in front of a computer all day weren't, weren't exactly appealing. The uh, Army used to run these TV commercials, and it featured an, an old AH-1 Cobra. And I just thought, you know, that looks pretty cool. So I, I went and checked it out. And as it turned out, you know, I, I passed all the, the testing and everything, and I got accepted. And so I started off. I went to a U.S. Army flight training down in Fort Rucker, Alabama. I went. I graduated and went through a, a Cobra transition, and did two tours as a Cobra pilot in the Army. Absolutely um, loved it. I mean, it was just great fun. Over one tour over in Europe, and then one tour in uh, Fort Ord, California, and we spent most of our time down in Panama. That was back during the the Noriega um, affair down there. And then, and then I um, applied in the Army. In the Army. Everyone is a helicopter pilot first, and, and you don't get any fixed-wing training at all. And the Army has, you know, mostly about 90% of its fleet is helicopters. And so if you want to be an airplane pilot, you have to actually ask. After two tours as a Cobra pilot, I decided to ask. That's when I went off and I flew the OV-1 Mohawk, a Grumman product that was an amazingly tough airplane. And a real joy to fly. It was uh, the only aerobatic airplane in the Army. It had ejection seats. It was an, an ISR platform, so intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance platform. And uh, I flew it in Germany, and we kind of flew against along the, the old East German border there and monitored what the Russians were doing in uh, East Germany back then. I did some quick Googling to have a look at what that, that looked like. And we won't spend too much time on it. We're here to talk about uh, rotary wing and, and, and tilt rotor things. But if you had to try and describe to a kid or, or uh, someone to draw it, how would you describe it? Because it, it's quite uh, it's quite a unique aircraft. Yeah, a lot of people com- compare it to a dragonfly. So you know, it's got that big, big bulbous cockpit, you know, and uh, and the, and the three tails on the, the three vertical fins on the back, and. Uh, yeah, I've heard the word dragonfly used many times, so I think that's how I would describe it uh, right immediately anyway. Yeah, it's quite – I'll put a, a link in the show notes for this for people to go check it out. It's, it's quite a lumpy-type-looking thing, but, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, that's the first time I've seen one is when I went looking for it because originally I thought it might have been like a bird dog or something with the OV, you know, the, the old yeah, type yeah. thing. But, uh, yeah, anyway, people can go and, and check that one out. Uh, and then, and again, I'll just quickly run through your CV before you jump into the rest of it. It talks about you uh, went back and did some some test flying after that. And my question there, I've got my notes, was you know Comanche. Did you did you get to do anything on the Comanche program? No, I, I didn't. It was kind of funny when I graduated. I went to U.S. Naval Test Pilot School, and that's where the Army sends their their test pilots. And when I graduated, even though I had Cobra experience. For some reason, they put me in the cargo utility branch, and uh, it was so they, they made I became a Chinook pilot, and I and I became a Blackhawk pilot, and I flew those two aircraft for for Army flight test, and I also did I did some work um, on a on an old Cobra that they were trying to turn they wanted to turn old Cobras into drones to use them for literally to use them for target practice. I used to say I should take conscientious objector status yeah, for this program. Sacrilege. <laughs> really, but uh, but I, I did that program. But but most I did a lot of Cobra. I mean, a lot of Chinook stuff and a lot of Blackhawk stuff. I didn't do any airplane stuff, and I did a Huey program that was a, actually quite enjoyable. It was an old UH-1H 
that they took and installed a, a very modern cockpit into for the National Guard because the U.S. National Guard units, there was 131, I think, UH-1s left in the National Guard, and they wanted to modernize them. So I got to fly a Huey, which was just an absolute blast, and we had this very modern cockpit, which made it nice and easy. And I learned a lot about IFR certification and avionics testing and all this stuff that, you know, you don't you don't really learn that in test pilot school. You you learn more about testing the aircraft, and you don't learn as much about testing systems. You you learn a little, but not as much. And so that was actually a very enjoyable program, considering it was such an old aircraft. Well, that's not bad. That you're ticking most of the the boxes there in terms of the, the U.S. Army fleet at the time. Then, and did you ever get in, in an Apache? I only flew an Apache one time. Yep, uh, just and it wasn't on a test flight. It was just a, uh, it was at test pilot school and at, at Navy test pilot school and all the test pilot schools, they they bring in aircraft and have the students go and fly them for one hour. And, and typically, what they do is they is they have you write a test plan to test something on that aircraft, and and then they bring that aircraft in and you get to go fly it with a qualified pilot. And you fly it for for an hour, and so that that was my only Apache experience. But it was a very I was really impressed by the uh, by the power of the aircraft. V- very nice, very easy to fly. There's a the next line says special operations, and you know I don't know if the the lack of detail there is is indicative of anything. But uh, was there anything that area that sort of time in your career that's worth pulling out? Uh, it was just. Um, I got I kind of got recruited because they were they were modifying an aircraft. They didn't they didn't didn't they weren't really in the business of modifying aircraft. And one of the one of the guys at the uh, at this uh, unit was was a an old Mohawk pilot with me, and he knew that with these modifications we're going to need a test pilot in order to you know get this thing approved for us to fly. And so he uh, recruited me to come work for him, and and I was um, I was still in the army, of course, and it was ended up being just a great job because I spent when I was back in the U.S. I would be doing test pilot work, and when I wasn't, I was actually able to go over to Iraq and just fly operationally. It was kind of kind of nice. I, I enjoyed it very much because I stayed busy all the time. Yeah, that's about all I can say, though. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. We'll leave that cloaked in in, uh, in secrecy. Well, when you talked about before the, the Huey uh, conversion then with the, the cockpit, I think that then would tie in with you, the, the Hercules work or the C-130 work you did. The little blurb there sounded like it was more of a systems integration. Yeah, that's exactly true. And at my, at my interview with Boeing, I actually did bring that up. I did, I did say that I, you know, because they ask you, you know, why do you think you're qualified for this job? And and one of the things that I said was I've done an avionics modernization program. You know, I did it on an old helicopter, but I'm familiar and with with what you go through trying to get a whole new cockpit IFR certified. And uh, so yeah, it, it it did help. And and you know, getting to go to uh, Edwards Air Force Base on the and and uh, getting to fly C-130s that was a, a double check in the box for me. Edwards Air Force Base is like, you know, it's like the the uh, the mecca for test pilots, I think. Getting getting to be there for, I spent a total of about four years there, or maybe a little more, uh, four and a half. And I, I just really enjoyed flying there. It's a beautiful, beautiful place to fly out there over the Mojave Desert and through the uh, Sierra Nevada Mountains. We did, we did low-level stuff, and we did, uh, we traveled. We took the aircraft across the International Dateline, went to Kwajalein stuff like that. So it was a lot of things that I would never have done in a helicopter that uh, I enjoyed a great deal. And I guess as we're going through here, listeners be able to start fitting places, you know, things into place in terms of your CV too. So when you step into a, a 609, so, you know, you're starting to, to build up a bit of a, you know, <laughs> the perfect resume to then move into, into tilt rotor. Then I think you went back to Schnooks and then again, I had to look it up. There's this X48 and I looked at the photos, and I have to. This is my question here: Is it had windows painted on the front of this thing? So it's. I worked out, I worked out <laughs> yeah. as a drone, but initially I thought it was like some huge, super secret airline passenger thing. Right, right, right. It had windows painted yeah. on the front, so it, it's a, a what a blended body, um, like a, a wing design for a, for a drone or a you know a large UAV. 
but yeah, it, right. it's got it's got a uh, cockpit windows painted on it. So with you don't have anything to compare it to scale. It could be the size of a, a seven four seven or its real size, which was what about eight, eight meters big or how big was it? Right. It it was a, it was a twenty foot wingspan. So you know, I guess that's you know six meters plus, and it was a five hundred pound uh, max gross weight. But it was a one twelfth dynamically scaled model of a full size aircraft. So uh, the wingspan on the on the actual aircraft, if they ever build it, would be two hundred and forty feet. So slightly slightly larger than a seven forty seven wingspan, I believe. But the the idea was that that was to show that you could fly that aircraft at low speed. Basically, you know, it's great to have an aircraft that can fly uh, efficiently up in the up in the upper atmosphere, but you need to be able to uh, take off and land. And so that program was showing that the blended wing body concept was uh, was able to be safe in the low speed environment, to have good handling qualities, to be able to take off and land. If you did build a full scale one, to be able to take off and land safely all the time. And Dan, what was your role there? Because obviously there's no one in the machine. Uh, so what were you doing day to day on that program? So I was a pilot. So those windows that you see, they weren't actually painted on. They were actually windows. And inside one of those windows was a little camera. And we flew the aircraft. We flew the aircraft stick and rudder with the, uh, with the camera. So you sat in a in a mock cockpit, and we had displays. and I and the primary display that I had was the video from that camera. And I had a HUD overlaid, and I got in the aircraft, and I had my throttles in my left hand and my stick in the right hand and my pedals, and uh, I accelerated. You know, when the time came, I accelerated forward. We had radios. We had to call tower for for clearance. <laughs> Um, I mean, it was just like flying an aircraft, except that I wasn't in the aircraft. I used to say, it's all the responsibility and none of the fun. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so let's, so let's jump in and spend most of the time now on the, uh, the AW609. How did that come across your desk? Like, was that, did you look up the newspaper and there was an ad for it? Or did you get uh, you know, brought across and, and walk into the hangar and they open the doors up and there's this new aircraft in the hangar? How did that work? <laughs> You're pretty close on the newspaper thing. So I, I'm a member of an organization called Society of Experimental Test Pilots. It, it's a group that was formed back in the, in the mid-50s out at Edwards Air Force Base. And it was kind of a group of, of both military and civil test pilots. And the idea was to sort of share things that you had learned, you know, so that mistakes you had made more, more precisely to share your mistakes with other people so that they wouldn't make those mistakes. And, you know, you can, you can imagine back in the 1950s, things were advancing pretty rapidly. So there was, you know, lots of mistakes to be made, I'm sure. That company, I mean, that, that organization, whenever you, if you're a, a corporate member, then you can post a job on the website. And they will actually send everyone, every member, an email saying, hey, so-and-so is looking for this. So I got an email saying that Bell Helicopter was looking for a tilt rotor pilot. Of course, the, the test pilot world is pretty small. And so, you know, I knew, I knew two or three test pilots at Bell Helicopter, and I called one of them up. And he basically was very positive about the whole thing. He, he basically said, apply, 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 apply. And uh, he told me they were also going to be getting a V-22 um, that they were going to use for advanced tilt rotor concepts. And so I would be flying both the 609 and the V-22. So, yeah, I applied, and uh, Bell was uh, happy to have me because I was already qualified in the V-22. So they made me an offer, and, and I actually left Boeing Company after three years. You know, Boeing's a pretty good company to work for, but I left them just to fly the 609. I wanted to fly it that bad that I, that I left a, a great job to, to go uh, into the great unknown there. I've been very glad that I did. So that was 2011. Was it a flying airframe at that point or had it been built? What, what was the, the progress? Yeah, like? yeah. Yeah, it, it was flying. It had been flying for, for a while. I came onto the program. We were, we were doing 
what they called aero, aeroelastic testing. So we were basically going out and shaking the airframe and making sure that the wings, that the motions damp out. If you ever notice, like when you're on an airliner and you hit a little bit of turbulence and you look out and you see the wing kind of bounce up and down. So that's by design, you know, it needs to, it needs to be able to flex, but it also needs to stop. It needs to stop bouncing up and down. And so that's the kind of testing that we were doing when I joined the program. We were kind of expanding that envelope. We were showing that, that it was safe. You have, to, you have to show that it's safe well beyond your maximum operating speed so that if a pilot goes out there and inadvertently overspeeds the aircraft, it's still safe to fly that aircraft. And so that's what we were doing when I first joined. But luckily, there was still a lot of other work to be done. And, we're, and you know, we did the auto rotations. We did the vortex ring state. We did the category A stuff. So there's been a lot of very exciting tests on the program since I joined. So it's almost cracking the sound barrier then in some of those flights. Same, same sort of yes. situation. Yeah, the auto-rotation stuff was definitely uh, close because it, it was a, what we did was, we, was things that other tilt rotors had never done before. We, we basically did a maneuver approximately 40-something times that had only been done once before on one tilt rotor. So that, that was pretty exciting, and it was, it was a thrill because we, we really didn't know what was going to happen. Of course, you know, we have simulators and we got in the simulator and we practiced and we tried to estimate what would happen. And we did a lot of buildup in flight tests. You, you, do, you start off from the known and you move gradually into the unknown and you try to change as little as possible. So we did a lot of airplane mode flight where we brought the power levers back to idle or the engine condition levers back to idle and we uh, acted as if the engines had failed, and therefore, you know, we were windmilling the prop rotors, and we flew it like an airplane down towards the ground, and we showed that it was, you know, safe and easy to fly. And then we did the same thing in VTOL mode, where we brought the condition levers back to idle, so the engines are no longer driving the prop rotors, and we entered a steady-state auto-rotation, just like a helicopter would, and we maneuvered it around. We sped up and slowed down and banked right and banked left. And we showed that it was safe to fly in, in auto rotation. And then after a, after a good bit of buildup, then we actually took it from airplane mode. We brought the engine condition levers back to idle. So it was a, it was a windmilling airplane. It was a glider, basically. And we converted back to helicopter mode without the engines running the prop rotors. And, and went from a, a windmilling airplane to an auto-rotating helicopter. And uh, that was, that was uh, new and exciting. And we showed that it was safe. And we did it at every center of gravity and, and at different gross weights, light, medium, and heavy. And we, we cleared the envelope for that maneuver. I haven't actually even thought through that one because I've got a bunch of questions from all the other stuff you just spoke about. But I'm just thinking the mechanics of going from the, the air coming from the front when it's being operated as a prop to then there's a point where the air transitions over to underneath for the auto-rotation. So there's that, that point where it's, yeah, the air's going from, from above to, to underneath. So what's the, how does the aircraft react yeah. at that point? That, that's very good insight. Yeah, what, that's what we didn't know was going to happen. So, you know, you're, you're exactly right. The airflow is coming in the front of the rotor system and windmilling your, your prop rotor. And as the nacelles are coming up, there comes a point at which the airflow is basically edge on to the rotor disc. And so there's really nothing driving the rotor disc for, for a short period of time there. So we, we we're looking to see how low, you know, how much uh, rotor RPM will bleed off during that time. And then also, you know, will it come back? I mean, if it bleeds off too much, then there's a chance it might not come back to uh, operating RPM and you might not be able to enter an auto rotation. Uh, so so that, that was kind of the exciting part of the whole thing was that we didn't really know what was going to happen. But you're exactly right. It's, it's that edge on flow that is the great unknown. And that's, that's what's going to, you know, that's what would be the problem if there were going to be a problem. All right. Well, I've got a bunch of questions. So I might just dive into them and then we'll see where they take us. So the first one is terminology. So you hear of, you know, tilt rotor and a lot of the legislation seems to talk about powered lift. So is it just two different names for the same thing? 
Well, not exactly. The, the tilt rotor is a specific kind of powered lift. So a, a Harrier, for instance, an AV8 Harrier is also considered a powered lift vehicle. And, and the F-35, the, one, the Marine Corps version of the F-35 that can lift off vertically and land vertically, that's another, another version of a powered lift aircraft. Yeah, okay, sure. And uh, now we've got all these, these Uber-type vehicles. <laughs> you know, we've got, there's a lot of them that are going for vertical takeoff and landing, but they don't, they don't use nacelles and they don't tilt the rotors. So, yeah, tilt rotor refers specifically to something like the V-22 or the 609, and powered lift refers to just about anything that can take off vertically and then fly like an airplane. Now, the blades, what do you call them? Are they propellers? Are they rotors? What's the, the terminology used in the 609? Yeah, the, the word is prop rotors. That's pretty creative, huh? But uh, <laughs> that that was actually the, uh, the V-22. The V-22 kind of started all the terminology i i would say and and so with our aircraft we have basically continued that same terminology so yeah we call them prop rotors the the quick sales pitch i guess is the it's you know faster higher further type thing in terms of you know capability of being able to come back to hover over over helicopters can you put some numbers to that then in terms of speeds heights uh, ranges and that sort of gear yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can, we can take off from, to, you know, we can lift off to a hover so we can take off from a helipad within about a minute or so, you know, we can be in airplane mode climbing out at 160 knots. Our uh, ceiling is going to be uh, 25,000 feet. And so when we when we go a long distance, like we've taken the aircraft to um, Heli Expo twice, once in Anaheim and once in um, Orlando. And when we go long distance, we go to we go to 23 or 24,000 feet and uh, take advantage of, you know, the improved efficiency up there. Our true airspeed will be over 250 knots. One, one time when we were going to Orlando, we had a very nice tailwind and we had a ground speed of 353 knots. And, nice. and yet when we, when we got to Orlando, we landed in the parking lot at the convention center. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah it's a pressurized cabin. So it's very comfortable, and uh, once you convert to airplane mode, it's really very much like a, a King Air or you know just a twin turboprop business type of aircraft in terms of noise and vibration and comfort. It's really not that different from a from a business aircraft. It's just that you know when you get there, you can you can slow down and you can land land it on the spot rather than a runway. Here's me who probably hasn't been over about uh, three and a half thousand feet in in three years but uh what's what's the limiting factor for for twenty five thousand? What what stops it going higher at that point design wise actually it's a it's a um, limit that has been put on the engines and i suspect it's it's probably a temporary limit we have we have pt6 engines which of course have been around forever and are just you know fabulously reliable but they have been modified a little bit for for um our case and and they've we have the, the version that is the most powerful PT-6 engine out there. So our, our engines are capable of producing about 2,400 horsepower each for, for 30 seconds for you know, a time-limited turbine gas temperature. And then for continuously, they can produce about 1,900 shaft horsepower each. That's, that's a lot for a, for a PT-6. And so right now, we just have a ceiling that's put on there because of that. The pressure, when you pressurize the cabin, you can end up with a ceiling based on that. But actually, we've been to 30,000 feet with permission from Pratt. We've been to 30,000 feet and the pressure ratio is fine. So there's, it's, not a, it's not a cabin limitation. It's just a, an engine limitation. And hopefully it's just for the time being. Okay. I did some quick figures. And I think, you know, roughly, the, again, the sales figures from uh, Leonardo talk about a 1,400 kilometre-ish sort of range. Uh, so for the Australian audience and listeners, it's basically Brisbane just past Newcastle back to, to Brisbane on, on the one tank. Do, is there a, an easy American sort of two cities that people would recognise in terms of, of round-trip distance? Hmm, I'm not sure. I, I, we can go, I know we can get from, uh, we, we went from Flint, Michigan to uh, Philadelphia. That was just a one-way trip, though. 
I'm not even sure how far that was, but we landed with plenty of fuel. That was when we were coming home from our icing uh, testing uh, a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. But yeah, we don't, it's kind of funny, but with a prototype aircraft, you have to be so cautious. It's not, we're not allowed to get it wet, you know, because it has all this instrumentation. And so when we do a cross country, what happens is we have to, we have to find airports that have hangar space just in case, (laughs) just in case something goes wrong, we have to be able to hangar the aircraft. A lot of times we don't really go as far as we could because there's a great airport that's only 350 miles away versus 400 miles away or something like that, you know? So, yeah, sorry. I don't really have a, a good experience with that yet because we're so conservative right now. And it's probably beyond the scope of what we're talking about here too, but I'm just thinking PR-wise, like you would be so careful because it could just be a normal aircraft issue, but it then just reflects badly on the on the whole program. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm sure that the final version won't be aerobatic, but does that, do you do any aerobatic testing in that process of going through? No, no. <laughs> um, it's limited to – now, I have. I have actually – it, it, it operationally it'll probably be limited to about 45 degrees angle of bank in airplane mode pretty much similar to the v22 limitations the the v22 is limited to 30 degrees angle of bank below 60 knots and maybe it's 60 degrees um, above that and and we're going to have similar limitations but i was doing a flight test one time where um i was supposed to do a 3g stall at 260 knots and uh, and so I was in a I was in a dive to get 260 knots, and I I banked it over to about 70 degrees to try and pull three Gs, and where I was looking in the cockpit was off to the side at the G meter, and I couldn't get three Gs for for anything, and finally the other pilot said to me, he goes, uh, you know you know we've gone past the 90. And I looked up and we were, you know, not quite upside down, but we were getting there. <laughs> and so kind of hard to pull three G's under that condition. So we uh, rolled it back level. The aircraft behaved beautifully. It didn't seem to care at all. And we rolled it back level and decided that um, I would look at the attitude indicator and he would look at the G meter <laughs> and, we would, and, and he would let me know when I got the three G's. So, uh, and that, that system worked. So we did it without going past the 90, but that's about as aerobatic as we've gotten. I love it. The cockpit photos I've seen, I guess it comes in two sort of flavors. So I imagine, especially being as the test aircraft, it's going to possibly look different to the, the final version, but it's, it's not a particularly complicated cockpit layout. Like you could, it's not as though there's dials and switches everywhere. It, it's quite a, a simple, uh, laid out cockpit. Yeah, and it, and it it will be um, the 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 production version will have the um, fusion Proline. Uh, it's a Proline fusion cockpit from uh, Rockwell Collins. So it's going to have three displays. It's going to have an, a flight management unit, and basically, you know, with, with a keyboard. This, the three displays are touchscreen. They're very configurable. But you know we're not even going to have a flap handle on the aircraft. We're, it's the flaps are completely programmed by the flight control computers, and there's no reason at all to have a flap handle. I mean, we we try to simplify the cockpit as much as we can, and that's that's just one example. Our condition levers, which we have in our current aircraft, will actually become rotary knobs. So literally, to turn to start the engine, you're going to take a rotary knob from the off position to the idle position and the engine will start completely on its own. You don't, you can monitor it, but basically it's, it's just going to be a switch and it's not going to be a lever. It's not going to be very traditional at all, but it is, I I will say it is what we have in our fleet of helicopters already. I mean, that technology is there. Yeah. The new FedEx stuff is, is amazing, but uh, yeah, it takes that whole sort of process out. Uh, but so yeah, general layout then. So yeah, as I said, there's obviously flaps and gear levers. Uh, you spoke that quickly, but the the control setup then I guess is going to be you know really interesting for for helicopter pilots looking at how the actual controls work. Uh, and I'm sure you've described it hundreds of thousands of times. But how how does the as a helicopter pilot jumping in the in the seat, how's the controls uh, setup compare? Well, 
Yeah, it's actually, um, it is a helicopter layout. So we have a, um, we, we call it a power lever, but amazingly it looks and acts just like a collective. So that's in your left hand. And then we have a, a center stick, which is a cyclic, but we call it a center stick. And that's in your right hand. And then uh, the two pedals. And amazingly, everything works just the same all the time. So, you know, when you're, when you're in VTOL mode, the, the power lever acts just like a collective. And if you increase the power, you're basically increasing the pitch in the, in the rotor blades, just like on a helicopter. And the engines respond to maintain 100% rotor RPM, just like on a helicopter. And, and you go vertical. And if you're in airplane mode, then when you increase the power lever, what you're doing is you're increasing the power to the engines, and then the blades respond in their pitch in order to maintain, it's 84% when you're in airplane mode, but they respond in pitch. So it's very similar to a constant speed propeller on, on an airplane. And, and it's all completely transparent to the pilot. So you don't ever have to think about oh, I'm in airplane or I'm in helicopter. You know, I, I always say, you know, you push the stick forward and the houses get bigger and you pull the stick aft and the houses get smaller, no matter what mode you're in. So it, it's, they've really done a great job. And what they do is they, they wash out the helicopter controls as your nacelles go forward and as you gain airspeed and they blend in the airplane controls. So when you're going, when you're in helicopter mode and you make a left lateral stick input, you're only affecting the rotors. You're not moving the, um, the ailerons. But when you're in airplane mode and you make a left lateral, you're not affecting the rotors at all. You're moving the ailerons. But when you're halfway in between airplane and helicopter, you're doing a little of each. Yep, sure. and, uh, and, and what's so amazing is that the control response, no matter what mode you're in, the control response is always predictable. You always get what you ask for. You're, you're never surprised, you, and uh, it's very smooth, and it's, it's very, very well done. Very easy to fly. I'll tell you, you know, it's a fly-by-wire aircraft. It takes this, the um, information from the sensors, and it puts those into the flight controls in terms of, um, terms of providing stability. We've got an attitude hold and, and, and heading hold and turn coordination and all these things, and it makes it a very easy aircraft to fly. Do you still get effective translational lift inflow roll? Like all those sort of aerodynamic effects you get as a helicopter, do you, do you still pass through all those or do they get blended out a little bit just because it's a, a different, you know, with the, with the wing? Yeah, actually you, you do feel those. And it's kind of interesting because when you take off, the way we take off is we start off within the cells vertical. If, if we're going to take off from a hover, we start off within the cells vertical. And on the collective, on the collective grip, there is a knurled knob which fits on your left thumb, and as you rotate or as you push it forward, then the cells move forward. It's it's spring loaded to center, so if you release it, then the knurled knob centers and then the cells stop moving. When you when you're at a hover, if you hold it forward, then the cells will move to 75 degrees, and then they'll stop there because you don't want the cells to go too far forward because you're not you're not on wingborne lift yet, right? So as you're tilting that lift vector forward, if, if you allow the nacelles to keep going forward, then nice the vertical part of the lift, yeah, the vertical portion would be shrinking and you'd just fall to the ground. And so we have this interlock and the nacelles will stop at 75 degrees. And then you actually have to release the nacelle controller and then push it again to get them past 75 degrees. But if you're going too slow, um, in other words, below 45 knots, then it will ignore you. It won't move the nacelles forward of 75 degrees if you're below 45 knots. That's a very nice safety feature there. But as you're doing that, as the nacelles do move forward and you begin to pick up airspeed, you do go through translational lift. The, the difference is that you accelerate quite quickly when you, rotate the, when you rotate your lift vector that much, that fast. And in a helicopter, you tend not to do it that quickly because your fuselage follows you along. But in a tilt rotor, your fuselage remains basically level. And so it's a kind of an interesting takeoff because, and, and an approach because 
you move the nacelles, but you don't move the fuselage. You don't move the stick forward. You move the nacelles forward. Yep. And it, it, what, it, what happens is your thumb becomes this primary flight controller. You know, you're, you're very used to your hands and feet being primary flight controllers and having lots of authority. But now suddenly your thumb has all kinds of authority, just your left thumb all by itself, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and you use that to get going. You, you use it to, when you're on an approach, you use that to slow you down. And so it's a, it's a different way of flying, but you get used to it pretty quickly and you kind of have to get rid of some of your helicopter habits of like pushing the stick forward to go forward and pulling the stick aft to slow down. But it doesn't take too long to do that stuff. And if you're coming in, like, you know, from 140 knots back to the hobby, you're massaging those nacelles back. But can you do, like, a quick stop? Like, does it have a flare effect? And how does the drag from the wings sort of affect that? Like, can you can you fly a quick stop? Yes, yes, you can. You you still have longitudinal cyclic. So if you if you want to fly it like a helicopter, you can. That's not a problem. It's going gonna, it's gonna, to – if you push the stick forward – we have cyclic pitch, just like a helicopter, and so the tip path plane will tilt forward, and the aircraft will go forward. And in fact, uh, we're actually looking right now, we're, we're starting to kind of practice a technique for taking off where we do the first 20 or 30 knots of the takeoff like a helicopter. Instead of rotating the nacelles forward, we actually use the stick, and, and the reason for that is we're looking at what would you do if the engine failed and you and you you know were at a heavy gross weight or it was a very hot day and and you were not able to continue the takeoff and and we sort of think that that the safest thing would be well if i was still had the nacelles vertical and i used the longitudinal stick that i would be able to land it quite easily and quite quickly whereas if i had the nacelles forward then now I've got to bring in the cells aft again, and there's a lot of you know okay. yep. it's just more complicated. So, so yeah, we're we're actually considering that as a takeoff technique um, for our normal procedures, our, not our Category A procedures, but for our normal takeoff procedures. But yeah, so yeah, you can do a quick stop. You can fly it like a helicopter. It doesn't hurt anything. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just you know that what we kind of do more normally, we try to use the nacelles. It's a little less wear and tear on the swash plate and the, you know, all the elastomerics up there and everything. Yep. All right, I'll punch you these questions. On the V22, I, th- I thought there was something about the engine lubrication that after a while there was an issue and they had to solve it uh, just because you're, you're running, you know, a turbine engine upright and then you, you run it in aeroplane mode horizontal. So you've got all the, the different amount of uh, lubrication and, and oil wells and stuff going on. So is there a way around that in the 609? Like, do you have a limitation in how long you can spend in, in either mode? No, no. That means the, um, the oil system is one of the few modifications that they made on the PT-6 in order to account for that fact, though. And I, I suppose they learned from the V-22, even though that's a Rolls-Royce engine. I'm sure they, they you know, knew what the technology was needed, what technology was needed in order to uh, make it work. But... Yeah, we don't we don't have any limitations like that. Now, one thing that we have and the V twenty two has is we have blower fans that um, you absolutely have to have when you're in VTOL mode. If you lose a blower fan, you either have to land the aircraft or get it to uh, airplane mode right away. So the it, the blower fan goes over the oil radiators for the engine oil and the transmission oil and the hydraulic fluid. Although in our production aircraft, the hydraulic fluid isn't going to have to be cooled. But the blower fan is driven by the transmission in each nacelle, and it's a very high-speed fan, and it sucks air through the nacelle. And you can imagine when you're in airplane mode, of course, there's air going through the nacelle anyway, so it's not a, it's not a problem. But when you're in VTOL mode, there's really very little airflow going through the nacelle, and so that's why you have to have the fan. So that's a situation where if that fan fails, then you you can no longer hover. And I mean, literally, you need to convert very, very quickly. Oh, yeah. yeah, okay. I wouldn't have uh, thought of that one. Maybe, maybe an operational type thing. So I guess we talk offshore helipads in terms of size. Can you operate to, to most current helipads? Is there an equivalent helicopter size that matches your footprint? Yeah, actually, um, we're barely bigger than, a, than our, our own uh, AW-139. 
in terms of footprint. We've in in when when the program was in Texas, we had a 60 by 60 foot helipad, and we can actually. I mean, taking off and landing to that was not even that was a no no problem at all. Taking off and landing, even even climbing vertically, you could keep the corners of a 60 foot helipad in sight to just over 50 feet. But we actually tried taxiing around on the helipad and found that we were if we pulled a little bit of power, but but not lifting off to the ground, just pull a little bit of power and kick in a whole bunch of pedal that we could, we could create a negative turn radius. So we could actually do a 180 on a 60 by 60 foot helipad and do a 180 without lifting off the ground. So. Nice. Oh, you got my handy on the, on the table <laughs> imagining how that works, but yeah. Um, <laughs> the, how's, how's a downwash compared to something like a, a 139? Yeah, the downwash isn't too bad because, well, First off, you have the two rotors, and so you've kind of split the lift between two rotors. And you know we have a we have a more we have higher one three nine, but since we have two rotors and the blades are spread out over a larger distance, you don't really feel it so much. And then we also have the wing there, and the wing blocks, um, and the the door is just forward of the wing, so. Basically, you know, coming and going, I mean, people, we have it back at idle when people are coming and going, of course. And so there's hardly any downwash, you know, you don't really notice it there. But even at 100%, it's, it's not too bad. There's a couple of photos with the, the extra long pitot tube on the, on the front. I'm guessing that's just a, a test type thing because there's photos without it as well. Right, yeah, that's, that's called a, a, a boom. And a, a lot of test aircraft, since... When, when you first build an aircraft, you, you're not really sure where to put the pitot tubes or where to put the static ports because you can imagine as you're, as you're flying, you've got like a pressure field around the aircraft and it, it may or may not, you know, you might put your pitot tubes in a bad place and, and not really get a, a, a correct airspeed reading. And same thing with your static ports. I mean, it'd be very easy to put your static ports in the wrong place and, and be off on your altitude all the time. So... What you have is you, we have that boom, and it reaches way out in front of the aircraft where we, we know the airflow is more representative of the atmosphere and not disturbed by the fuselage so much. And then we, um, that, that way we get a, a, a more accurate airspeed, a more accurate static port. And then we also have angle of attack and beta vanes on there so we can measure actual angles for when we're doing side slip testing and that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, roll equipment. So I've seen again pictures of a, of a hoist. Have you done any hoisting with it yet? No, not yet. That's uh, that's being developed right now at our at our plant in uh, in Italy in Cascina Costa. So yeah, that's that's ongoing project right now. But what's going to happen is the hoist is going to be installed. Will be inside the aircraft, so it won't be a, a real high drag thing. And it'll have an arm that reaches out to the upper half of the door. So the door that you've seen in pictures right now is not the door we'll be using on production. The door we're using in production is more of a clamshell type door. So the top half will open up and the bottom half will open down with, and have a step on it like a, like a biz jet or something. Yeah, okay. Yep. And, um, and yeah, so the hoist will attach, the arm will attach to the upper part of the door and then the, and there'll be you know almost like a pulley system there, and the cable will go from horizontal to vertical. But that's the the actual hoist itself. I, as far as I know, is still in design. Uh, fuel tanks? Can you carry like aux tanks inside the cabin, or is there any going to be any kind of external mounting? Yeah, we we have we have right now just the tanks in the wings. But yes, there is development of a external tank that would be attached below the wing hang down from the wing and then uh we haven't really talked about internal tanks yet but the external tank is still in development so i'm not sure how far out that is and we're also looking at the potential for an aerial refuel probe that would extend from the top of the aircraft over the fuselage and then it, and then it would extend out because of course you got the two prop rotors out there so you have to get pretty far out in front of those guys in order to be safe but um, that's that would be an aerial refuel capability that we're we're looking at more of a long term plan. You just remind me there too that a lot of the pictures, especially when you see it in helicopter mode and looking side on, 
you, you forget how big those the, the cross-section is. When you see a, a front shot where it's, it's flying towards the camera in, in airplane mode, you just realise how big those prop rotors are. Uh, I guess it'd be the same as a helicopter, yeah. but normally, <laughs> normally you're looking at a helicopter again side on. But, yeah, when you see it in airplane mode coming at you, it's, it's a lot of surface area on those rotors. Yeah, yeah, it is, and and it's a very strange looking blade. Uh, you know, it's uh, it has a tremendous amount of twist to it. It, it twists a total of forty seven degrees from the root to the tip. It's kind of a compromise. It's it's not the world's best helicopter blade. They tended to try to optimize it for for the propeller function of the blade because that's what you're going to be in. You know, most probably of most of the time you'll be in airplane mode. And so they, they optimize it for that. So, but it is a very strange looking blade. It's also a very stiff blade. It doesn't, you know, when you, you, you're used to seeing helicopter blades that kind of droop down a little bit when you're parked, when they're static. And uh, there is absolutely no droop whatsoever to these blades when they're static. They're, they're that stiff. And they also have a composite spar, which is interesting. Rather than a titanium spar, and so the, the purpose for that is that if you were ever to be stuck in airplane mode, which is highly unlikely because everything on the aircraft is triple redundant, but if you ever got stuck in airplane mode, you could actually land it like an airplane. When the blades hit the ground, they basically kind of destroy themselves without transferring all that torque back to the transmissions and ripping the transmissions out the way if you ever seen a helicopter like roll over or something like that, you know, that when the blades hit, you know, the, all that force gets transferred to the transmission and the transmission usually departs on, uh, on the 609 and on the V22, the, the composite spar allows the blade to, they call it broom sticking, but basically it allows the blade to uh, tear itself up without destroying the rest of the aircraft. Yikes. Do you, do you roughly know how far below the, the fuselage the blades come down when you're in full airplane mode? Pretty far. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how far it is. I'd say it's got to be, you know, two meters at least. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, so I'm not sure. For people who are trying to position a, a career uh, in this, also, you, you know, your CV is a, is a pretty good way of getting there. But, uh, you know, someone who's, who's sitting there as a student pilot now on helicopters or even fixed wing, how, how are they going to get to uh, that sort of tilt rotor flying jobs? What would be the, the path you'd be recommending people take if they're, they're super keen on that? Yeah, that's a good question. And I... I honestly think that it's more helicopter-like than it is airplane-like in terms of flying it. You know, you have that collective and you have the, um, you know, the cyclic. And, and we have had a number of um, guest pilots come here and fl fly the simulator. I don't know how many people have flown the simulator. I mean, it's a ton. We've also had about seven or eight or maybe nine people come and fly the actual aircraft. And all of them, except for one, were helicopter pilots. And I would tell you that almost every single one of them got in the aircraft and flew it beautifully right away. And even the airplane guy, the one guy that we came, that came and flew it, who's only an airplane guy, even he flew it really well. Uh, I think he had just a little bit of trouble hovering, but I mean, you know, that's the, probably the hardest task there is. And uh, so uh, I would say that I, I think that the companies that are going to be hiring people to fly this aircraft would probably look towards helicopter pilots more than they would towards airplane pilots. Um, but that being said, you know, it does go IFR. It does go up into the, you know, into the flight level areas, you know, flight level 250. And so, you know, you need to be a helicopter pilot who's also a good IFR pilot. And uh, I think that that's going to, people are going to find that important also. Yeah, my notes here, I've got, you know, ATPLs, high altitude weather, oxygen, pressurization, you know, all these things I've never yeah. had, to, uh, had to do. Yeah. All right. Well, look, I, I think time-wise, there's, uh, there's a project here, some medical people in Australia are trying to get up. Uh, and again, you know, Australia is one of those places where most of our cities are on the coast and we've got such huge ranges. 
and they're actually trying to get a, a 609 and start the conversation here happening and they've got some modeling done up of, of maps and, and distances and you know how you'd, you'd say if having to use a fixed wing a helicopter and ambulances where you could just use a, the one 609 to go straight from the, the airport to the to the scene on the road and then straight back to the, the hospital so they've got some really interesting plans there for, for coverage and, and use of tilt rotor in, in Australia that's I'll put those sort of details on the uh, on the website for this as well the first the first orders when we is there any idea of when the first customer is going to be launching off in a, in a 609 yeah right now we've got era helicopters here in the u.s has um, signed up to buy the first few aircraft we hope to deliver those in 2020 and have them start operations in 2020 so i mean we're going we're working furiously right now to get our part 142 school developed we're working very closely with the faa the FAA is working furiously to get the regulations changed, to get the certification standards written. Um, they've even enlisted us to help them. We have uh, representatives from industry that are working on not just Leonardo, but also from Bell Helicopter and from other companies that are helping to write the uh, powered lift airman certification standards. So, yeah, everyone is working furiously to try to make this happen in 2020. I think that you know we've got plenty of customers who are very, very interested. And we've got, you know, a couple customers who have put down deposits and, and signed on the dotted line to take deliveries. And I would like to mention what you were just talking about, Australian medicine. That's a Dr. Paul Adams. He, and he's a super good guy. He's come over here. He's actually come over here. And, you know, we've shown him the aircraft. He brought a pilot with him. We put the pilots in the simulator and had him fly it. I, I agree with, with um, uh, Dr. Adams tremendously that you guys have a great market. Uh, I think we could really do good things over there. I think the aircraft is um, just fit for, for the, you know, the, the terrain that you have and the, and the interior when, and you don't have airports, you know, everywhere and stuff. And this is just a great aircraft for, for that situation. So I'm, I'm very optimistic that I get to come there someday and, and teach somebody to fly. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Bring your surfboard. Yeah. Okay, I guess the last thing to finish up then is, does this stuff scale? Like, is there designs on the board there at Leonardo for, for bigger machines? Does it just scale up in size? Do we add, you know, uh, does it turn into, into four uh, prop rotors? Uh, wh- where does it go from here? Yeah, we, it, it, we're looking at a, a bigger tilt rotor, but we're not going with more, with more prop rotors. It's just a bigger design of, of similar nature, but we, we do, are looking at a lot of improvements so the, I don't think I can say what they are right now. Sorry, <laughs> but um, but yeah, we're looking at like a 23 passenger uh, tilt rotor, and um, we're basically looking at all the lessons learned from this one, and what can we improve on? What can we, you know, how can we make it cheaper to operate? How can we make it basically last longer? I mean, you know, how can we make the parts, the rotor head parts, and all of that last is much much longer? You know, act more like a propeller than a rotor system in terms of maintenance. So yeah, there's a, there's a improvements that can be made, and we're we're already working on those. But the next version is still a uh, a twin rotor tilt, you know, nacelle type of tilt rotor. So physically, it looks like the 609 um, to a certain extent. Well, Dan, thank you so much. Like, there's so many things in that aircraft that are, you know, it's just exciting to have new things coming online, and also there's a few more programs starting up with with different versions of of that you know, high-speed flight type thing coming. So, yeah, look, it sounds like a, you know, a really good, uh, interesting sort of role you got yourself in there. And, yeah, again, thanks so much for, for sort of sharing your time and, and giving us a bit more of a look into what you're doing. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. That was Dan Wells from the Leonardo Tilt Rotor Program. And we were very lucky as there are probably few others in the world that could take us behind the scenes of the aircraft and its development more than Dan can. Dan mentioned Paul Adams, an Australian doctor, in the interview. Paul, along with a number of others, has done a a lot of groundwork looking at the impact that the 609 capabilities and its mission profiles would have on rural medicine and patient care here in Australia. The team has also produced a documentary looking at the medevac of Matt Gain, a helicopter mustering pilot in the remote Northern Territory following a crash that he had and how that might have been different with a, a 609. So for that incident, the 
AW139 from Darwin, had to actually refuel on the way to make the range to get out to the scene and then take Matt to a, a local mine site where they were met by a King Air that then flew him to Darwin in the King Air and then had to be transferred into an ambulance to then get to the hospital. All up, he took 10 hours to get Matt to the, the hospital and the initial helicopter crew were then out of duty. So they actually hadn't had to stay overnight at the mine site before they could return to Darwin the next day. In comparison, the modelling with a, a 609 would have taken six hours and been able to land directly at the hospital without having to use ambulances and the aircraft would have then been turned around and back online ready for follow-on tasking. So it shaved off four hours getting mapped to the hospital. You can find the documentary and some other material that Dr. Paul and his team have produced on the blog post for this episode, so I'll put the links there. It's quite interesting if, one, you are in the EMS role, or two, if you are in Australia. Before the interview, I mentioned that Dan Wells has just been made a fellow of the Society of Experimental Test Pilots. Well, back in 2014, Dan and two other test pilots from the AW609 program were jointly recognised with the Society's Kinchlow Award for Outstanding Professional Accomplishment in the Conduct of Flight Testing. And what they were recognised for, in the, the most part, was what we touched on in the interview about the testing of the engine off performance and converting from a fixed-wing glide configuration back through with the tilting of the, the rotors back into the autorotational state. I'll include a link to the Wikipedia article on the award in the show notes, as it makes for some fascinating reading. The award was started in 1958, and its awardees include Mercury and Apollo astronauts, pilots from the X-15 rocket planes, Concorde flight testing pilots, people from the, the B-1 program, or sorry, the B-1 bomber program, the space shuttle test pilots, McDonnell Douglas, NOTAR, the Boeing 777 and F-117 stealth fighter, uh, test pilots amongst a whole heap of other programs. These are all people and programs that really push the aviation envelope. A great example is the 2018 award, which has gone to James Payne from the Airbus Perlan project. And this project, it's, it's amazing. It's a, a pressurized, unpowered glider that's designed to surf mountain waves, which basically projected then up to 90,000 feet. It's absolutely crazy stuff. This week marks 50 years of the Australian Army Aviation Corps. This milestone was marked with a, you know, a number of fly paths and events at Oki, including an open day, a parade and dinner. One report I got back was that there were about 2,000 people at the open day. It also marked the official retirement of the Bell 206 Kiowa as a training platform, with that role now being taken over by the Airbus H135 at Nowra. So Australian Army pilots will now be going straight through their training on multi-engine aircraft and glass cockpits all the way through. And although we're celebrating 50 years of Australian Army Aviation Corps, we definitely like to uh, tease, I guess, our Air Force uh, compatriots here in Australia because the very first military pilots in Australia were from the Army back in 1912 through to 1919. We had the Australian Flying Corps, and these were all Army personnel with the Air Force not yet being in existence. And definitely some amazing stories from World War I uh, with Australian Army pilot Frank McNamara, who was awarded the Victoria Cross. And if you listen to Adrian Park's podcast, the Cancel Sarwatch podcast, and find episode 12, Parky does a, a really good story there and, and covers the award of the Victoria Cross. So again, if you're on the blog post for this episode, I'll make sure I put a link in there for that podcast because, again, it's just amazing aviation history and, yeah, quite proud that it's uh, Australian Army Aviation as well. With all that being said, I didn't actually get out to the celebrations at Oki because the opportunity came up to do some maintenance test flying on a, a Huey here in Brisbane. So I uh, jumped over and, and did that one. So a big shout-out here to Dave Kerr at Brisbane Helicopters at Archfield Airport who has brought two UH-1s from storage in the US and has them, had, had them shipped out to Australia. This last week, it's been my only involvement in it, but it's the result of months of maintenance and legwork to get the first of the aircraft back into operation after being on the ground for 20 years. This particular Huey was in Vietnam and then was used by the US Marine Corps and later transferred to an Air National Guard unit before going into storage. It is looking amazing and it's now in fantastic condition after all the effort and I'm sure all the dollars 
that have been put back into it. It was a huge honour to be on the controls there on Wednesday to be able to be the, you know, the first to take it back up into the hover after the two decades. So a big thank you to Dave for the, the chance to do that. Where we were hovering the Huey there at Archville is right next to the, the airport boundary fence and the road. We actually started to cause a bit of a traffic jam there as all the cars going past were starting to slow down and basically back up the traffic as they were all uh, having a look at the, the Huey there hovering uh, next to the fence. So there's still a few more maintenance test flights required, but we're close to having a Huey in the skies of Brisbane again, and I'm sure there's going to be you know, big demand there for adventure flights in that aircraft. A lot of feedback from the last two episodes on mental health with Kevin Humphreys. So thank you for anyone that emailed me or left a comment. I've shared several of those with Kev, and he was very appreciative that he was able to make a difference by sharing his story. Well, I'm saying thanks. A, a big thank you, as always, to the small group that helped to chip in for the cost of the show over on the Patreon page. I won't read everyone's names out on every episode, but please do know that's hugely appreciated. To Gareth Priest and Chris Bocamp, who are new supporters this month, thanks, guys, for dropping me a line, as well as for the sponsorship support. I've actually caught up on the phone a few times and been trading messages backwards and forwards with Chris in Western Australia. After the episode on virtual reality headsets and flight sims, Chris has been doing his own research and recently uh, pulled a pin and bought his own VR setup. He's like everyone else that I've had a chance to the demo with my headset, and he's been blown away by the experience. Given that we've been talking about tilt rotor in this episode, you can actually get the V22 Osprey model for X-Plane for $32 US and couple that with a, a VR headset you can have a you know incredibly realistic and immersive experience of, of sitting in the cockpit and actually flying one of these tilt rotor machines. The same development team is currently working on an AW609 model for X-Plane. So at the risk of continually repeating myself, I just can't recommend highly enough that you try and track down a, a VR flight sim and give it a go. Interestingly, and I could be starting a rumor here, but I was talking with someone this week and they let drop that CASA may be considering allowing a component of VR time with the right hardware to count towards the number of hours in the helicopter license requirements. The USAF have also been trialing off-the-shelf VR headsets recently with their pilot training programs, and the Australian Navy is just receiving their uh, virtual reality flight sim systems this week from Ryan Aerospace. EASA also announced at Helitech in Amsterdam this month that they see VR headsets and light uh, flight sims as one element of reaching their goal of a 50% reduction in accidents over the, the next 10 years. Anyway, I got sidetracked there, but if you're, if you're keen to support the podcast, then please head over to rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. And thank you again for everyone that's been involved there. That pretty much wraps us up for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it and got something from it. And I'm looking forward to this week coming up. The plan is to be back in the Huey at Archfield to get that finished and then start on Dave's endorsement training in it. And hopefully I can share some of the photos on the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Rotary Wing Show if you're keen to check those out. It is a really nice looking and well-restored machine. And if you are in southeast Queensland, it's well worth a trip out to Archfield to have a look at the Huey. Till next time. Cheers.